Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. Today's conversation is with Paul Harrison from Carve, who are now a part of Radency. Paul set up Carve, a social media agency that specializes in recruitment marketing, and our paths first crossed in the recruitment marketing world when we were both getting our businesses established in the early 2010s, I guess. Paul sold his business to Radency in 2019 and moved to New York. Unfortunately, Paul moved to New York around about the time I was moving back to the UK, so there wasn't a huge amount of crossover, but we did managed to meet up a couple of times uh, at the end of 2019 when he first moved over. He still lives there with his family. It all seems to be going very well with the integration with Radency. And um, thank you very much, Paul, for having this conversation with me and giving me some of the details about how the deal went down. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. You and I have known each other for quite a long time, over 10 years or so. You did a lot of work with 33 and you guys were the social media part of 33 at the time, weren't you? Or no, you were sort of affiliated. You were in the same building. Yeah, exactly. We were, that was the first part of our journey, really, actually. We were working closely with them, you know, as their kind of social media offering at the time. So, uh, yeah, it seems a long time ago now, but that was, yeah, a real key part on our journey, really. Well, look, I'm excited to sort of learn more about how um, you went through that process of, of selling your business. But I thought a useful place to start would be if you could just give us a bit of an overview of what Carve is and how it came about and how you set it up. I never really set out to create a, a creative business. I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I never set out to to be my own boss, really. I was um, working at a specialized recruitment and uh, corporate communications agency called Market and uh, Market Comms. And uh, I was head of digital. And in fact, my wife, Adelaide, had just joined us as kind of head of PR. So we had all our eggs in one basket, as it were. And, uh, and in fact, we'd invested in that business. And then one day we woke up and I got a call over the weekend and the whole business folded. So we were basically both without a job. We had a mortgage to pay and had no idea how to pay that mortgage. And so I approached one of my oldest clients, BLT, Don Leslie, and said, look, you know, I've got this idea about a kind of a blog service that we could offer f- for you. You know, he was like, I'm interested, you know, how much? And I basically looked at my mortgage payment. I think it was like £2,350 a month at that time. So that was our first invoice. And, and it really began from there. So... So that was in uh, 2006, I think. So, okay, uh, that was the year that Casual Films was founded, which was my previous video wow. production company. Um, and I guess sort of round about that time, YouTube was launched. So sort of video online was just starting to be a big thing. I mean, yeah. quite a few people still had dial-up in that at that time. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Twitter had launched. Jack Dorsey had sent the first tweet about about three months before we kind of launch carve as this you know i'm doing air quotes not very good on a podcast but a social media consulting firm so it was yeah it was pretty early days and you know and i was definitely showing you know at least half of the proposition was explaining what social media was as much as how we could help firms use social media in in creative ways so it was you know great times i look back you know i mean knew nothing we knew nothing about running a business about setting up a business about contracts about anything really but 
it just goes to show, I think, you know, if you're passionate about what you do and, and you know, you have good people around you, you can really achieve anything. So, uh, but it was, a, it was a steep learning curve, let's put it that way. And so who were the founders? Did you found it with someone else? Or was it just so with my, with my wife, basically. Right. So my wife and I founded it and she was the back office and I was the kind of front office. So, but really, again, when we, when we began Barnaby, you pro- perhaps, you know, casual was a different experience, you know, which I'd like, I'd like to know. But for us, you know, it was like, literally how we're going to survive for this month or the next. And then we kind of, you know how it is. We were just kind of focused on literally surviving. And then we look back kind of 12 months later and it's like, wow, you know, and by then we'd hired people and suddenly it was a company, but it didn't really begin like that. And and can you just sort of talk me through how the company grew in the first few years and, and kind of what size you got to? Yeah. So very, very organic to begin with, as I say, you know, I think, you know, our very first hire was Kate, who's still with us today, Kate Halls. She kind of runs our operations at what is Regency today. So Kate was Carver number one, as we called her. Um, because Adelaide and I wanted to go on holiday. We were like, my goodness, what, what's going to happen? And then we hired um, Christophe Mallet, who was Carver number two, and he joined us and really helped shape us. And so very organic. I think we had three employees at the end of year one. But then, you know, we started working with people like 33 really closely, which was, you know, incredible opportunity for us and working with their clients. Probably we were like five people by the end of year two. So still really, really slow growth. But then from then we kind of grew people and really grew and, and, you know, the work we were doing by then had really shaped who we were, you know, even though we were based in London, we were very fortunate to work with clients who were struggling to manage social media globally. So then we, you know, that really became our, our core kind of competency was kind of global recruitment, social marketing. So uh, uh, and then it grew from there. And I guess a couple of the other milestones were um, getting our own first office. Obviously, we had rented spaces before, but getting our first place in Wapping, I've got a picture of it hanging above my desk here in New York, was, was a really a huge moment, you know, and I remember that was a big deal. And then as we got bigger and bigger and, you know, I don't know what, 50 people or whatever, then I worked with an executive chairman, actually, a guy called Jeremy, to help us really shape the business and and really be much more strategic about it when really for all of the time in the business, I was focused on the business, you know, doing the work. And I really wasn't focused on the direction of the business or the strategy or anything else. And I really wasn't that interested in it, frankly. Okay, so sort of leading up to the point where you started to think about selling your business, kind of what what size and shape was the business then? I would say we were about kind of 40 people, maybe a little more, more by then. We only had um, our office in London, but we were flying overseas. I was in the States like twice a, twice a month. We had, I would say, probably a roster of about 25 clients at that point, um, you know, 10 really core clients that gave us that real stability with a lot of retainers and everything else as well. So it felt, Barnaby, that the fundamentals of the business, the offering, the solution, the people we had, the reputation we had, the work we were doing could have helped us to grow, but we didn't have any of the other tools to help us really make that leap. You know, we'd done everything by ourselves. So, for example, we'd... By then, we created our US entity. We had Carve Social LLC uh, registered out here in New York. But we were just doing everything on, you know, when you do it yourself, it's very, very slow, huge amounts of learning. So it was a very slow process. So I felt we we had a business that could be really scaled, but we didn't have either the tools or the skill set to scale the business. And, and it's perhaps worth mentioning that, you know, we'd never had investment in the business. You know, we'd never had third-party investment, so everything was organic. And we thought that, well, we could really take this organization to another level, 
how do we do that? Do we go big investment? Do we hire some people with the, the kind of skills to do it before? The route we went with in the end was Jeremy as a, as a non-exec chairman, as I say, to kind of help guide me. And I used to meet him once a week just to ready the business. Uh, I worked with a third party coach as well, Sanjeev who really helped systematize some of our things. So it was just about kind of professionalizing what was just a group of people having really good fun in whopping into something a bit more kind of scalable and viable fundamentally, I think. Were you and Adelaide still the two main shareholders or had you done any EMI schemes or anything like that? No, we had a small amount of kind of equity that we'd put aside for a couple of our kind of early people in the business that we that we promised to them, but nothing more structural than that. So when we did the deal, it was really just Adelaide and I, which made it easy, of course, especially since we live in the same house. And what was the kind of mix of clients that you had at the time? And you mentioned like quite a lot of retainer work. I guess that sort of will increase the value of a business, right? If you If you can demonstrate ongoing retained business. Yeah, exactly. So we had a really strong professional services offering. We had quite a strong offering in financial services. We had a couple of quite big tech firms. We had a big telecoms firm. So, you know, we just had a really nice kind of blend, I think, of organizations. And because we were able to demonstrate that we'd done a lot of repeatable business, either repeatable or or retained, you know, I think that helped when it comes to things like valuations and when it comes to things like, you know, looking at how attractive we were as a proposition, I think that we demonstrated that we could build long-term relationships with organizations, but also kind of deliver long-term value. Firstly, half the people on Twitter are social media consultants, right? So you've got a huge, you've got a lot of people offering basically a cottage industry of kind of social media offerings. So I hope we're able to demonstrate that, you know, we developed a a set of kind of solutions that made us really sticky as an organization and really helped organizations evolve their social media as we did as well. So I think that was, you know, whether by luck or by judgment. Yeah. So how did the how did the sort of idea of a sale come about? Like how did that conversation start? We had a great firm, great people, but as soon as we made the move to the US, and and you know, our biggest clients, like 70% of our of our revenues at this point were coming in dollars. So, you know, we had to be in the US and we were very lucky these extraordinary clients were continuing to engage us and retain us, even though we can only work, you know, half of the day by like 5pm, which is over here, it's like half the day's gone. So we knew we had to make the move. And also, I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but Carve felt still like a lifestyle business for us in that Adelaide and I, we dreamt of, we love New York as a city, I was here all the time with work, we dreamt of, of living out here. So we'd, we'd engineered the move, we'd created as I say, the LLC, so that we could do that. You know, the visa situation is too boring to recount, but but complicated, as you know. But I think when we got to that point, we were like, can we take it any further? And I think the answer was no. So we were thinking about shaping it to be much more viable. And then we had had, uh, one or two offers from different places, actually, before the kind of the really serious offer that was much more serious and much more aligned came in and um and I think when that came in then we realized that actually this was something that we could that could create a great future for us but also could create a great future for our people which was you know we again I'm sure every owner feels like this but you know the the team that carve team I mean I I, I love them I still love them they were like my family and uh, doing right for them was equally as important as doing right what was for us uh, best for us as, as owners. Okay. You sort of mentioned like preparing the business for sale and kind of putting things in place that were going to make it more attractive to a potential buyer. Like what, can you give give me an idea of what some of those things might be? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, as I'm sure anyone listening to this, you know, there's some things which are the kind of the quite obvious ones. So the very first thing we did was around the the, the finances and the way we were reporting. You know, we'd had a, a one-man band accountant who'd been with us from the start. Great guy, cheap, but none of the robustness that a serious buyer would look for. So that was a real process. We engaged a, a professional, uh, you know, a bigger professional firm to help us with that. Uh, you know, I really worked on my own financial literacy in terms of being able to describe it. So the finances was one thing. Second thing was operations. So we worked with uh, Sanjeev, amazing guy who I'd been introduced to as a as a coach. And I hated the idea of coaching. I mean, the whole idea would make me recoil. But actually, he was he was brilliant. He was an inspiring guy. He'd done it himself. So he really helped us operationally. So the way that we um, priced projects, you know, the way that we delivered on projects, um, putting in place a really robust project management, things that sound really obvious, but, you know, again, we we never really given them perhaps the attention that we deserved. The third thing, I think, was really thinking about the way that we planned our resource. So we just, typically at Carve, we'd hired incredibly bright, incredibly smart People incredibly young, often, you know, half the team now still there was their first job. What that meant was is that we had myself and then we had quite a a big gap between me and all the rest of the team. And also it was kind of everyone did everything because everyone loved everyone, but it wasn't designed for scale. So we hired like director of client services, you know, really starting to to make the resource plan kind of a readiness. So those those three things were kind of key. But I think the other one is is kind of mindset. You know, we were so happy and it was just so much our baby. But I think, you know, we had that mindset shift as well. That to do best by our people, which is Adelaide's and I's, is the first thing. It was always, you know, not being arseholes was really the, the core of our of what we wanted to do. And, you know, there was only so much room for people to grow in a, in a relatively small firm. If there's like 50 people, where, where can you go? So we felt to do right by them, you know, especially as I was moving to the States, perhaps a, a bigger organization could give bigger opportunity for them to work on different clients, to work in different countries. Uh, you know, and so some of those things started changing our mindset and being much more receptive to an offer if it came in. Okay. Um, and then, so you mentioned you had a couple of sort of offers that didn't go anywhere to begin with. Did you yeah. put the company on the market or did they just come in all organically? Both very organically, actually. One was an organisation we were working very closely with anyway, and we had a very relaxed relationship. And then one day they said, look, become a part of the family. And it, on every level, it was just just not right, you know. And, and I don't blame that individual for doing that, and I love them for it, but it was just not the right offer. But I believe that the offer we finally went with also came organically. I, I don't believe we were proactively marketing ourselves on the market. I just think it happened to be that we'd really worked hard on, as I say, these pillars, worked hard on our visibility. And then this organisation, as was TMP that became Radency, you know, they were really looking for an adjunct to their tech content offering. And so then it just became a real case of kind of right, right company, I hope, and, and, and right time. Okay, so how did that, how did that sort of approach and how did that conversation go initially? Yeah, super interesting. So, um, we got approached. I went to meet Michelle. We had like a, a chat. I think I came out to meet her in New York because I was out here anyway. We had lunch, um, went to see the offices. Um, you know, chemistry, obviously so important. You know, I hope Michelle would say the same. I mean, I certainly enjoyed that. She talked about the ambition of what was TMP. That she's used Radency, it's either now. So what her, what her ambition was, what the ambition for the company was. She wanted to know a bit more about us and what we drove and, and what, what we cared about. 
And then we had an offer that came in after that. And we had some back and forth on that, as might be expected. You know, we introduced Michelle to a couple of our key clients so they could, she could get a view and, and understand, you know, like from, a, from our clients, what they thought about us. And then we accepted the offer and it, and it went pretty smoothly. There was some due diligence and everything. But yeah, I mean, I, I would like to say for Radency, I mean, they made the process really, really quite simple. They made us feel really welcomed. Radency had bought previous businesses, so AIA, Perengo, uh, an agency out in the West Coast in the States. So they'd done it before, and I think that was a real advantage in that it didn't feel like we were just kind of some appendage to a, you know, that they had built the business by acquisition. So there was a real model for that, and we were made to feel really welcome. They were brilliant about introducing the team and Michelle coming to our offices and and, you know, big welcome on some of the global all calls we had because, you know, it was going from a tiny firm to a much bigger firm. So they did a really good job of that, of making everyone feel really, really welcome. And from their point of view, where do you think they sort of saw the value in in Carve and how did they think that would help them grow their business? I would say probably three things. Firstly, is that they were buying talent. We had some really talented people you know, when you're buying a firm, yeah, you're buying turnover and revenue and profits and all those kind of things. But I think one was talent. Secondly, was the the, the expertise that we had compared to the, the size of Radency, you know, our revenues, you know, we were really proud of them. And it's a really, really proud of them. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty small slice of what Radency did. So, but I think so the expertise that they were buying was a really great fit to how they were evolving their content offering to drive our unified technology platform. And I think the third thing is, you know, we had some some really amazing clients who, who you know, happily are still with us today, you know, so I think that was a key value proposition for them as well. So talents, expertise and clients and the revenue obviously is nice but my perception was that you know that was just part of it it wasn't all about the revenue okay okay and can you talk at all about how they kind of structured the deal i mean i think for for a lot of business owners they have this assumption that they put their business on the market someone comes along offers them eight times ebitda they get all the money on day one happy days and they they sail off into the sunset the reality of that is obviously very different <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah can you sort of talk about you know just you don't have to give me numbers but just sort of roughly how the deal yeah. was structured well, one thing that, you know, I think we really liked about the way that they structured the deal, I've had friends who've sold into WPP and it is like, you know, the earnout is long, it's brutal. So we had a, a mix of cash, of shares in the whole co and revenue after an earnout figure, basically. But, you know, the earnout was one year. It was very achievable. You know, I genuinely felt from the get go that they were really with us to help us achieve that earnout figure. So it was a blend of all three. When we got the original offer, it was a signal of their intent. You know, it was about that they were going to deal fairly and equitably and transparently. And of course, you know, we argued about some numbers as you as you would. You know, I mean, this was our baby. But the fact, the way that they approached it, the way that they structured it, we felt was just brilliant. So you had sort of a relatively short earnout of one year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do they sort of keep you incentivized and motivated beyond that point? Because you're you're still there, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a great, it's a great question. And um, you've been there, you've been your own boss, right? You know, I was my own boss, and it was a fully organic lifestyle business, a beautiful business. And we were so happy. And, and I was really quite nervous about um, not nervous is not the word, but I was very interested to know what it would be like to have a boss, you know, because no one's told me anything to do for ages. And so I was, um, 
going into this very eyes wide open in terms of what might happen post earnout and everything else. For me, you know, A, we were either smart or really lucky with the firm that we joined in that their success, their technology, they are absolutely, we are absolutely thriving. So that first is a reason to stay. Secondly, they've really bent over backwards to make our team feel part of the firm. And obviously we have natural churn and everything else, especially post-COVID and everything else. But, you know, so the firm, all the people in what was Carve or what is now Radency Social, I feel still really empowered. So that was good for me. And also I've really enjoyed the challenge actually of basically taking our social media recruitment marketing office offering and kind of reimagining it and reconnecting into our technology offering. You know, Regency is a technology firm. So I've really enjoyed the intellectual challenge. I felt like I've welcomed. The firm is thriving, which is obviously great. You know, Regency Social still continues to grow and thrive as its business within the business. So I think all those four things are kind of the reason I'm still here. Great. So just taking a step back a bit to, to sort of when the deal actually signed off, I'm always quite interested yeah. in like, how did that happen? Where were you? What did it feel like? It was actually really crazy because we were moving to the States anyway and moving our children, moving our family. You've done it, you know, move it to New York, huge family move. And, and we were doing that anyway. We'd already set up the LLC. We, we were already coming. And then this deal came along, parallel path at the same time. So we actually signed. We'd literally just flown over to make the big move. And then we came to our old building in New York and we signed it there with Emerson and Michelle, I think. So it was kind of a big moment. I know that we took a photo. I think my hand might have been shaking a bit when I, when I signed. There was certainly a lot of excitement about what would come next, you know, but, you know about being part of a company. So there was excitement. There was also a lot of, you know, a, you know, anyone listening to this, right, and you've got your own business, whether it's one person or a thousand people, right, you take risks, as you know, every day. We had everything on the line every day. We had no funding in that business. Our house was the guarantee for everything. You know, when you sign the lease, you are on the line every day. The only advice I can give anyone is keep making decisions. I kept making them. Sometimes they're wrong. So there was a, there was a little bit of release about suddenly it's like, you know, all that, you know, because it's, it's challenging, right? You never really go on holiday. You never really switch off. You're always the person who has to sweep up everything. There's excitement and there was a little bit of kind of like, a little bit of release, for, for want of a better word, if that makes sense. And how did the sort of integration go? How was the sort of next couple of months? So, um, you know, again, kind of kudos to Radency. You know, they really led us, certainly for year one, do our thing. We had still our own P&L. Gareth, who is the European CEO of Radency, joined our board with Darren, Kate and I. But, you know, we still basically made our own decisions. They were just supporting us in, in hitting the earnouts. We were really left alone, but encouraged and nurtured to kind of make the connectivity into the wider business. So we were joining all calls. We had some shared office collaborations in like London and Radency Social, who's in London. Obviously, I was over here, so I became quite close. So 50% of my job became managing the US side of this content business. So, you know, it was it was actually really smooth. You know, I think, again, it's Radency had real experience of bringing in, of integrating businesses that they bought, you know, and they've done it before. So again, anyone listening to this and they're looking at options, maybe you've got options on the table. Again, from my own very limited experience, you know, that was a real benefit, a company that had demonstrably successfully integrated businesses because it meant I could speak to the other founders of these businesses and ask, 
honestly how it was and, and, and the feedback was really positive. So, so it was good, you know, and there weren't too many growing pains. You know, we'd have a few arm wrestles around, um, you know, like various different technologies. You know, we were, a, we were a Google business. These guys are Microsoft businesses. So we moved from Slack to Teams. That was a little okay. painful. We're still, still, a little bit, um, still a little bit of pain around that. But no, broadly, I mean, these are small kind of issues. And, and I feel and I hope that the Radency social team feel their part of something bigger as well. You know, the chance they get to really play on a bigger stage. Obviously, we have, what, more than a 1,000 colleagues around the world, I think, now. I think we've got, like, 20 offices. So, you know, just just a chance for everyone to let, to level up a bit in terms of their experience and their kind of expertise. So um, were the majority of the team still in London and you you were kind of moving to All New York? All of the York? team. Just, oh, just The whole me. team. Okay. The whole team was in London and, and just me, uh, just me in New York. And now, of course, I have some of my Radency social members here in, in, in New York, but they actually still aligned with Radency Social in London. But yeah, the whole team stayed in London. So who was managing the London business then? So when we did the acquisition, uh, and it's a, it's a brilliant point I should have made, and it was such a success. So a guy called Darren Harris, who was, um, I think, an MD in Radency, or TMP as was, AIA, came to become RMD in London. So it was, it was actually crucial. It was crucial, Barnaby, because it meant that I could focus on helping, you know, wearing two hats over here, but obviously I couldn't manage the team being in New York, but it meant he could, and he's a brilliant leader, he's a brilliant manager, he could manage Radency Social while slowly helping them join the dots to the different parts of the business. So that, that was a really crucial point, actually. And did he have a, a sort of a decent management team in place that he could actually successfully manage? Because it's quite a big team, right? To sort of just yeah. come in as a sort of MD into a new business and start making changes. I mean, how, yeah. how did I that mean, go? It's, it's a great question. So Darren and I met because Michelle had outlined the plan about we're going to bring Darren in. And, you know, I was like, my God, you know, how am I going to feel about this? Two things. One, yes, we had by then really good management team in Radency Social who were all leaders like of creative and ops and, and tech and, and analytics who knew what they were doing, you know, that process of operationalizing and everything and, and really building the resource plan. So there was that in place. But also at least 50% of it is that Darren is, you know, some people are just great leaders. He listens. He can have really tough conversations, but he's just a great leader and all of the team thank goodness, really took him to heart. And I think he also made it clear from day one, which was, you know, very smartly done on his side, that he wasn't the company guy. You know, like, he wasn't like the company guy to ruin all the fun. He was like, right now, this is your, my, we're in this together, we're one team, how can we make this thing? You know, and so he he, he was absolutely brilliant. That's great. That's really good to hear. So, um, so looking back on it, and how, when was it, by the way? What year did it go through? Uh, it went through in uh, the end of September 2019. Okay, good timing with a with a pandemic about to hit. Yeah, yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was good timing. And and of course, when we moved to New York, then so yes, so the end of the earnout was uh, September 2020, which was kind of a red letter moment. And Darren and the team were brilliant to, towards that. And Adelaide and I had also incentivized the team personally as well to. To, you know, not incentivize. We wanted to share the success that they built. So that was something that we were really happy to do, though, as ever, it's always complicated from a tax perspective. And then fast forward, what, a couple of more years now? I mean, I'm, as you say, still here, still loving it. Radency is absolutely flying. And that's another thing that 
it sounds ridiculous, but only with hindsight did it occur to me how lucky we'd been. If I'd have done this again, I would have been much more robust about my due diligence of the people buying us. Not that, you know, we had our lawyers checking them out, see they had the money, that kind of stuff. But I mean, you know, I'd have been, and I would have got great answers because they have a really robust strategy, but I just got lucky. You know, I would have been, so anyone listening to this, you know, it's like really understanding where the parent is going. What's their, what's their strategy? You know, how are they going to differentiate? How are they going to win in the market? And because obviously that success is now your success. Because it's very easy and, and there's so many distressed purchases, right? Companies say, oh my goodness, I need a film company. I need a creative agency. I need a digital agency to help me solve this problem because I'm, I'm hemorrhaging clients because we haven't got that. You know, that can be a nightmare. And again, I've had friends who've been in that situation. So we didn't do as much due diligence as perhaps I should have done, but happily we were just lucky and radiancy is, is, is really flying, which is obviously, obviously great. That's great. Um, so is there anything else sort of looking back on it that you would do differently if you had your time again? I think a couple of things. One is very specifically to people in the UK. I, if I had one wish, is that we'd have managed to launch in the US by ourselves beforehand, just only because in, in our world of creative marketing and recruitment marketing, digital, you know, social consulting, the markets, it's unimaginable, actually. You know this, Barnaby. I think, you know, the market in the US is so vast it is, you know, I think if you're, whether through partnership, whether through acquisition, whether through organic growth, you can make, you can come to the US. I wish I'd done that earlier. Uh, it's obviously complicated to do. You know, the, the denizen of the, of 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue didn't make it easy when we were, uh, when we were trying to do it right. And it's still not easy. So I think the growth is good. I think fundamentally, I'm, I don't know about you, Barnaby. I'm, I'm a creative guy, right? I'm a creative sales guy. I love doing the work with the clients. I, I just never set out. I'm not a, I love to lead a team, but I'm not a great leader. I'm not a great manager. I'm not a great finance guy. And that I wish, you know, with the, with the benefit of hindsight that I'd worked a little bit harder on, just to have more fluency and more confidence to understand how that works when you really scale it up, right? You know, when you're like a five, $10 million business, or whatever, it's really straightforward. When you're like a $150 million business, it's a fascinating learning curve for me in terms of, you know, what actually matters to business in terms of, you know, when you're really playing on a, on a, on a truly global stage with really, really big companies, you know, how that, how that plays out. So, so I think, you know, that's something I would have done slightly differently, perhaps with, uh, with hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, and you um, sort of glossed over this, so don't feel like you have to answer this at all. But I'm sort of just interested, like, roughly what revenue profit you were at and and sort of what multiple you got. But if you don't want to answer it, then you don't have to. <laughs> I think what I would say is, obviously, we negotiated as hard as we could to get the right deal in place. The thing I would really implore anyone listening to this would be to think about is, is think not just about those numbers but also where you're going because it is, it's so easy to be hyper focused right Jeremy and I used to talk about the multiples all the time you know we're we gonna get 12 could we get 10 could we get 15 and actually when it came to fit when it actually came to it it was like can I see myself working with these people can I see my team being looked after and, and nurtured and empowered I know it sounds really flippy floppy, but that stuff's important. You know, these people had bought into Adelaide and I, they built their careers with us. We promised to do the best by them. So, you know, yes, the multiples and everything else were important, but, you know, I, I wouldn't let that be everything because, you know, there's so much more important things out there than just the money. I totally agree. And it's all about, it's all about value, isn't it? It's about the value that you've 
created, but there's something about the value that you can add to to Radency as a group and that's going to be the thing that they focus on when they're looking at an acquisition and the sort of the numbers come later, right? And if they think they think it's a good yeah. fit, then they'll sort of make the multiples fit. I think you're right. I think you mentioned the point about, you know, why are we most of us still here? And I think it was it was that. It was about the fit was good, the chemistry was good, the value proposition combined was good. But also, you know, the idea that anyone listening to this who's in that situation is to ask that question exactly as you say, Ivanabi, is like how you know, can two plus two equal five? You know, how can you help the value of my company? And for us, it was amazing. You know, suddenly we had 400 of the leading clients in the world who we could give our proposition to. Suddenly, you know, we had a technology platform that we could begin to do some really interesting stuff with automation and AI and really incredibly scale in a way that's just not imaginable without technology. So yeah, I think those things are really important questions. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. This podcast was edited and mixed by Guy Hickson and was produced by me, Barnaby Cook. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.